Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome to everyone. Thanks for joining us. This is the regular Monday night gathering of Against the Stream. And uh, we'll start with a period of meditation, uh, followed by some lecture and discussion about what the Buddha taught and how we can apply it to our lives uh, to alleviate suffering the unnecessary suffering that we experience. So let's jump right into a sitting meditation, find a way to sit that's upright, relaxed. As you're ready, allowing your eyes to be closed. Taking a moment to release any unnecessary tension, soften, relax into the present time experience, the posture. And establish a inner aspiration or intention to be kind and accepting, making loving kindness the foundation of your practice. Loving kindness understands that there's nothing wrong with you. Whatever the mind does, whatever the body experiences, the heart feels, it's just the way it is right now, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, easy or difficult. We have the ability to meet it with kindness, Therefore, be at ease, even when it's uncomfortable. Being at ease with our uneasiness, our lack of ease. By accepting the mind, the emotions, the sensations, as much as we can, moment to moment. From this intention of kindness and friendliness, acceptance, establishing mindfulness in the body, with the body, present time awareness of breathing, of sitting, 
directing our full attention to the sensations that the breath creates at the nostrils or belly. Breathing in, one knows, I breathe in. Breathing out, one knows. The breath sensations of exhaling. Some find it useful to note in and out as a quiet internal mental label, tracking the breath as it comes and goes. And likewise, using this technique to track where the attention goes when we leave the breath, drawn back into hearing or thinking, just name it, hearing thinking, and then choosing to return our attention, our mindfulness back to the breath.
mindfulness also has a quality of investigation. Even though we're not indulging in thoughts about the future and past, we are engaging the aspect of mind that investigates, analyzes, contemplates the present, what's happening, is my breath coming or going? What sensations are present here and now in my physical body? The Buddha teaches that all of the Dharma will be revealed right here in our own bodies. Mindfulness is the tool to see for ourselves the truth, the Dharma, the true nature of this mind, of this body. So paying attention to the breath, the body, with this kind of interest of what is it teaching you? How is the Dharma of impermanence, the truth of impermanence revealed with each breath, with each sensation?
present time awareness of the body breathing, sitting, investigating the impermanent sensations that are arising, passing, and opening to the contemplation, investigation of feeling tone, second foundation, mindfulness. Not only what are you feeling moment to moment in the body, in the heart and the mind, the breath, becoming more inclusive of the sense doors, but how does it feel? What is feeling pleasant or unpleasant or neutral? What in your direct moment to moment experience is painful here and now. And how is that pain subject to impermanence, changing? What is pleasant? How is that pleasant sensation, emotion, Sounds, thoughts, changing, rising and passing. You can continue to use the breath as a kind of home base or an anchor to the present, but don't get stuck on focusing on the breath, become more inclusive of your whole body. Include thoughts and emotions. We can observe the mind the same way we receive the breath. Thoughts appearing, sustaining, proliferating, and dissolving. Mindfulness is not a detached observation, but an engaged participation with our moment-to-moment experience. When we find ourselves clinging to a story the engagement becomes letting go, responding with relinquishing, letting go. When we become aware of resisting, pushing away or suppressing, the engagement becomes responding was softening into accepting right now. It's like this, pleasant or unpleasant, calm or chaotic, radical acceptance.
meeting our pain with as much compassion as we can. Inclining the heart towards kindness and forgiveness and compassion. Meeting the pleasure, the pleasant moments, pleasant thoughts, sensations, emotions. With non-attached appreciation as much as we can. Let go, let it be impermanent. Enjoy the ride. Spending the last couple of minutes extending kindness and compassion, forgiveness in all directions. To your friends and family, wishing them well, may you be happy, may you be at ease, may you be free from suffering.
to your enemies, the difficult people in the world, in your life, extending kindness and compassion, the intention to meet the confusion of others with compassion and forgiveness. May you be happy, may you be at ease. May you be free from suffering. So much confusion in this world, so much hatred, so much ignorance. We attempt to free ourselves from hating the ignorant, but learning to love and have compassion. Extending kindness and compassion, forgiveness in all direction, covering the whole world. And take a moment to remember that you're part of this interconnected web of existence. Including yourself and the loving kindness and the compassion and the forgiveness. Letting go of all efforts to meditate or to develop or make any experience happen and just rest. Release tension in the mind, in the heart, in the body.
accept yourself just as you are. All of our imperfections, our confusions, our judgments and fears, as well as our wisdom, our kindness, our desire to create a positive change on the planet, include it all. Take a moment to um, think about and reflect on what the fuck just happened in your mind, in your heart, as we attempt to be present and see clearly and learn to respond more appropriately, more wisely to the reality of constant change, the reality of having a mind that isn't very good at staying present, it likes to think about the future and the past, and spends a lot of time in what one, one teacher referring to our minds called the realm of hope and fear. <laughs> Your mind is the realm of hope and fear. I like that, I see a lot of that in my own mind. So, um, all right, I have some thoughts. I have some views and opinions <laughs> and uh, hopefully teachings to share with you tonight. I think the general uh, theme that I'm reflecting on tonight is about um, perseverance, about continuing. Um, first thing we have to do is um, find a path. And I don't know how many um, dead ends you've been down <laughs> in your life. Um, I've been down a few dead ends. Um, one of the ways that, one of the, my favorite ways that uh, the Buddha's uh, teachings 
are referred to as the middle path that leads between two dead ends. Uh, and these very two common dead ends that so much of humanity gets stuck on. And, and one dead end is the dead end of religion, which is funny to say as, <laughs> as, as Buddhism, which is also a religion. But the Buddha was like, you know, uh, for the most part, religion is this dead end that gives all of these false promises and, you know, delusional views. And, you know, people have created all of these delusional philosophies of uh, magic, uh, you know, uh, interventions and, you know, heavens and all of this uh, stuff that's just not what's actually happening here. Um, and uh, what a dead end it is when you dedicate your life to a belief that's not going to really produce happiness for you. And uh, his perspective was that, that certainly in his time and certainly a perspective that I share that for the most part, religion is a dead end. Um, and uh, Buddhism, although you know, technically I would say is a religion, uh, but it wasn't really supposed to be. But maybe, maybe all religions weren't really supposed to be religions. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that you know, Jesus and Mohammed and you know, Buddha, all of these fellows weren't really like, hey, let's start a religion. I think. Um, Really, it was just uh, L. Ron Hubbard who said, out to, <laughs> who said, hey, I'm going to see if I can start a religion. Americans are so stupid. Let's see if they'll believe this shit. <laughs> but, you know, certainly the Buddha wasn't trying to create a religion. He was really sort of anti-religion as, as this sort of form of like, you know, religion's a dead end. And Buddhism as a practical, applicable, psychological tool, not about faith, not about belief, about experience. Here is how to end suffering in our lives. The truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering. Not a religious teaching, a... Uh, humanist psychology, human beings, even in the meditation instruction, that core piece that I was reflecting on that all of the Dharma, everything that we're looking for, Dharma meaning the truth, the liberating truth will be revealed right here in your own body. It's not outside of you. And that's part of what he's saying, that dead end of looking outside of yourself to statues, to priests, to Dharma teachers, to looking outside of ourselves for someone else to do the work for us, looking for a divine intervention, looking for, and him saying like, that, that shit's not happening. <laughs> that's a dead end. That's a delusion. And the other dead end that many of us have spent a lot of time, and if we're honest with ourselves, we'll say, I still get stuck on, I still go down that fucking dead end all the time. And that's the dead end of looking for happiness from the world. Worldly, sensual, material status. I will be happy if I get enough money and stuff and attention enough likes, <laughs> enough, you know, 
reposts enough, uh, whatever, views enough, money enough, power, all of these things that the world can provide, but that are dead ends when it comes to the freedom, the happiness, the uh, that we all really want and that we'll never get from the internet or you know the bank account or our you know just the world doesn't provide it's a dead end when we're looking for freedom if you're looking for freedom and you're here so i'm going to assume you're here looking for freedom so first we have to find a reliable path that leads to a reliable refuge and we have to look at, you know, what are we doing with our life's energy and how much are we expending on dead ends? And, you know, I think a lot of people, I might even say the majority of people turn Buddhism into another dead end because they turn it into a religion and then they put all of this, you know, faith in it. And, uh, you know, uh, rather than applying it, sitting back going like, yeah, I really believe that, but I'm not meditating every day. I'm not living by the five precepts. I'm not going on retreat. I'm not actually doing the work, but I believe in it. And then I use it as a, last week I was talking about how we use it as another way to judge ourselves, not living up to the ideal. Um, so first we have to find a path and I'm not trying to say that Buddhism's the only path that leads to happiness. Maybe there are other spiritual modalities, psychological modalities. Um, I'm happy to say that I'm totally convinced that uh, worldliness will never provide the happiness that anybody seeks. You know, if you know if you're looking for true happiness. It's not something you can purchase. It's not something that any external accomplishments or abundance or any of that bullshit that dresses up sometimes as spirituality uh, will provide for us. It's an inside job. It's about our own relationship to our own mind, our own emotions, and by inside job, our relationship to this world that we live in that's pretty fucked up. It's also pretty beautiful and, you know, there's all kinds of joy to be found in this world, but especially, you know, like human beings are just a mess. <laughs> like what an amazing world this place, you know, this would be without all these human beings fucking it up <laughs> with politics and religion. And I mean, I don't know, I pause even as I say that because I like people. I'm a people person. Um, and I'm fortunate that my life is, you know, I'm, I'm, I live in a bubble surrounded by uh, good people who are interested in good things and are trying to recover and heal and uh, wake up. So I have a pretty, I like people. But the Buddhist perspective certainly is, which makes per perfect sense to me, is that the vast, vast, vast majority of humanity is asleep and is going down these dead ends of materialism and uh, delusional religions. And it's just, a, it's a, you know, the world's asleep, the vast majority. 
and I include Buddhists in, in that kind of majority of people being asleep. The Buddha said he thought only a handful of people in every generation would actually wake up. Partially because what we're trying to do leads against the stream, the stream of greed, which is normal and the status quo. And it's, we're just born into this greedy body, greed for pleasure, survival instinct. I want it to feel good. I want to be comfortable. I want to, and then we're born into this body that isn't feel good all of the time, isn't comfortable, this mind that isn't at peace, that judges and criticizes and fears and is worries. And, and so then we have hatred, aversion towards others, towards ourselves. So he said, this path that goes against the stream, coming to compassion is fucking hard. And, uh, you know, it's counter to our instincts. It's against the norm. It's not normal to be compassionate. It's, it's radical to be compassionate. As we all know, like how, how long you've been trying to be compassionate and how shitty at it are you? <laughs> right? How hard is it to be compassionate just with your own mind, much less other people's minds? So hard to do. It's a beautiful bumper sticker. <laughs> It's a beautiful title to a book. Um, talking to a friend earlier about the secularized version of uh, Buddhist compassion practice called mindful self-compassion. You know, they, they've packaged it and pretend like it's not Buddhism. Beautiful. I'm, you know, a little bit critical of it, but not that critical because the more people we can teach these techniques to and pretend like it's not Buddhism, fine with me. But it's so easy to say mindful self-compassion. But when you start practicing it, I know, you know, there's some people here are brand new. Just trying to start. Some of us, some of you, at it for years and decades. And you see, I've made some progress. I'm a little bit better at it or a lot better at it than I used to be. But I still can't quite be compassionate all of the time. I really want to be wise and compassionate. And, you know, I'm training my mind and I'm putting the effort in and I still can't do it all of the time. Still get hooked into my judgments and my fears and my views and opinions and hooked into politics. I mean, how much have you suffered this last few months? Right? Did you choose to do? I mean, wouldn't you? Wouldn't it have been nice to just watch the whole election, everything that's going on, with just compassion for both sides? Wouldn't it be nice to just? I want to do that. I want to have love in my heart and compassion and forgiveness and just total. I don't want to suffer. Uh, I've been trying for thirty-two years on this fucking meditation cushion. <laughs> It's a lot better than it used to be, but still I can't do it all of the time. Which brings us to the topic of finding a path 
that you resonate with. I mean, you're here, um, you know, Buddhism, Theravadan-based Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, Vipassana, insight meditation, loving kindness, these practices, the five precepts, these practices that give us the guidance, that give us this middle path uh, between the dead end of blind faith and delusional religions and materialism, worldliness. We have this path, but it's not a quick fix doesn't work very quickly. It's very slowly, gradual. My father's first book, one of my favorites, called Gradual Awakening. That if you commit and you persevere and you meditate and you practice some renunciation, ethics, a big part of our practice isn't just getting on the cushion. And this is where I feel like so many and I see it in my own practice, but I, you know, sometimes easier to see in others than in ourselves, where people are do a lot of meditation, but aren't being honest, aren't living with integrity, aren't living with the five precepts, are still getting high or drinking or lying or stealing or uh, sexual misconduct and, um, and, and wondering why there's not the results, not the progress that we're seeking. I used to think this was a quote from the Buddha, but I found out it was not the Buddha, but a different teacher um, who said, practicing meditation without living with sila ethics, the five precepts as the minimum, is like being in a rowboat, trying to cross the lake, the stream, trying to go against the stream in a rowboat while you're still tied to the dock. <laughs> you can meditate all day, every day, but if you're still creating negative karma, if we're still creating negative karma for ourselves, we're not gonna get far. And this is of course the Buddha's teaching of commit to renunciation. Stop killing, stop lying, stop stealing, stop sleeping with people that you shouldn't be sleeping with. Stop using drugs and alcohol. Have a clear mind. Be sober, be present. And then you can do the four foundations of mindfulness and the Brahma Viharas and, the, and you will benefit from them. And I'm throwing around a bunch of Buddhist terms. And I know there's new people here that are like, what the fuck are you talking about? What are the Brahma Viharas and these five precepts? And so I'll pause for a moment to define um, this path, this middle path, is the eightfold path. The first section is um, understanding and intention, starting to understand that karma is a law of the universe. And uh, our intentions create our karma. 
positive intentions create positive momentum. Negative intentions create negative momentum and consequence. The middle section of the path is all ethics. The five precepts are, I vow not to kill. I vow not to steal. I vow not to lie. I vow to abstain from misconduct in my intimate relationships. And I vow to uh, abstain, completely abstain from drugs and alcohol in any sort of recreational way. You can take medicine, but no recreational, um, no party, no avoidance of what we're feeling. The necessity of feeling what we're feeling, not avoiding it by getting high or drunk. Um, the Brahma Viharas as uh, the development is a little bit of what we're doing tonight of um, developing loving kindness, uncovering loving kindness and compassion, as well as appreciation and equanimity. These four qualities of, <clears throat> of positive emotion of heart. So now that we're here and um, <clears throat> some of you are new and some of you will stay and some of you won't stay, um, I just wanna like really uh, encourage uh, perseverance and, uh, and staying on the path long-term. And I also I have this feeling of like, uh, I don't know if it's the best idea or not, but of like just vowing to yourself, taking refuge and just making your own internal vow of like, I'm gonna continue no matter what. I'm gonna keep going. I'm gonna keep going for freedom. I'm on this path, it's working, however slowly, however bored I get with hearing the same fucking Dharma talks over and over, reading the same books over and over, you know, hanging out with the same people. I'm gonna keep going. In, um, and I, no matter how difficult it gets and knowing like, it's gonna get difficult and you're gonna get bored and you're gonna get disillusioned and you're gonna be disappointed and you're going to, like all of that shit is gonna happen. And if you're sort of new to meditation or even if you've been doing it for a long time and uh, you really like it, <laughs> you're probably not doing it right. <laughs> If you, if you really like, but I mean, like it, I mean, like if it's pleasant all of the time, people are like, yeah, I love meditating. I'm so blissed out all of the time. Like, well, you're missing a whole bunch of reality if you're blissed out all the time. Part of what we're asked to do is to face our sorrow, to face our grief, to face our, uh, wretchedness aspects of the mind of the heart of the human reality 
and is not pleasant and it's not always fun. And, and I think it's why a lot of people give up and practice for a few months or a few years and then say, I'm gonna just go down this dead end over here and bang my head against this wall of worldliness. Or I'm gonna go over here to this religion that pra promises abundance and bliss. I'm gonna buy into that bullshit. So the perseverance and that internal, I, I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how in recovery and 12-step recovery, they say, we say, keep coming back. This encouragement, no matter what, partially I was thinking about this, I was talking to, communicating with two different people today who uh, were coming back from a relapse into their addictions. And, um, just that encouragement of like, okay, keep coming, keep showing up to the meetings, keep meditating, keep coming back, persevere, don't give up, even though sometimes we feel so hopeless. We feel so dejected, so uh, keep trying. Uh, there was a teacher, that used to work with with us that had created this sort of his mantra was uh, i love you keep going and developing that as part of the internal loving kindness uh phrases for yourself even when you're feeling like i don't love myself i hate myself and i hate this world and i hate buddhism <laughs> and, and just kind of coming back to I love you, keep going. Keep persevering on this path. Keep coming, no matter how many times you break the precepts and you lie or you, whatever it is, recommit over and over every day. This is not a path that needs to be perfect. It's a middle path and it can be, you know, there's some detours and there's some, but stay on the path. Keep coming back to what our hearts know is right. This kind of internal moral compass of honesty is the right thing to do, even though it's not always the easiest thing to do. It's so much easier to lie or omit or minimize or exaggerate sometimes but it's the right thing to do to be tell the truth karmically we need to keep coming back no matter how many times we fail keep coming back um this book ajan amaro's book the breakthrough that we just finished uh, a three-month course in Many of you are attending tonight. We're part of the course, so a little bit of a repeat for you. But he ends the book, and this is a book that is transcripts from a 10-day silent meditation retreat that he was teaching years ago. And they recorded the talks, and then they edited it and turned it into a book. And this is one of the last chapters, so it's like day nine of a retreat. 
And he's given all of these wonderful, you know, the breakthrough is about like, you can get enlightened in this lifetime. You can become a stream enterer, this kind of level of enlightenment. And, um, you know, and, and there's, you know, the whole self is kind of a fabric, you know, all of these deep, wonderful teachings. Here's how to do it. Here's the potential of what Buddhism offers, nirvana. Here's how to get there. And then he ends the retreat by saying, it is important. Wait. I think I'm, I'm going to read a couple pages to you because I just think it's so, so appropriate. He says, the spiritual life naturally involves a lot of idealism. We create an image of how we should be, the best way to live and the most helpful and beautiful attitudes to have. Religious ideals are spelled out and illustrated, described many times in many different places, in Dharma talks and books, our own minds and memories. We can create very clear and fixed ideals for ourselves. But to quote T.S. Eliot, between the idea and the reality falls the shadow. The ideal of how I should be or the perfect me or what spiritual life should be like is just that, an ideal. A statue of the Buddha has not had to adjust its posture since it was made. It has not wobbled once throughout its existence. The knees of a Buddha do not ache. The back doesn't get tired. It doesn't need to eat or breathe. It's an ideal. It is a fixed form. When the Buddha was alive, he had to eat, breathe, walk around, and be with people. And so he was subject to the limitations of the physical world and the laws of nature. When we look at our lives, it is good to have ideals. This is why a Buddha statue occupies a central place in a temple. When we look at it, it shows us how we should be, all sitting with utterly straight backs that are neither tense nor rigid, nor bent over, utterly calm and serene, radiating kindness over the entire world, like the sun awakening the lotus. Ideals are useful. We put them at the center, we hold them up, we use the ideal as a guiding principle. In the same way as we use the statue as a reminder of the quality of an awakened awareness. We need to be reminded of the capacity, potential, and opportunity which we have as human beings to be fully liberated, mm -hmm. to bring our lives to spiritual fulfillment. We can do that. This is what the ideal is suggesting to us. It reminds us of our potential and our capacities. But we have to move, don't we? We have the ideal, the Buddha image at the center, but we have to come and go. We have to eat and breathe and relate to other people. We have the karmic nuances in our lives to deal with. These nuances emerge from our family relations, our particular history, our education, memories of the events of our lives, the responsibilities we have, the choices we've made, and so on. We have to deal with many details of our lives, 
the Buddha statue doesn't have to worry about the Sangha, how the Sangha is faring or whether he has to establish any more rules or what to say in the Dharma talk this evening. When we use ideals and those ideals are brought to bear on our life experience, we find we fail a great, great deal as humans. This is the key right here. We find we fail a great deal as humans. We keep failing. We keep not meeting the ideal. We don't have perfect concentration. Our attention wanders off. The mind gets carried away down various avenues of papancha into different elaborations about the past, the future, drifting off into ideas, fantasies, and anxieties, rewriting the history of past conversations, scripting future conversations, and so on. We fail. We relapse. We cannot live an ideal. If we try to do so, we find that we keep missing the goal. We have random emotions. We become swept up in a feeling of anger, grief, excitement, greed, fear, or jealousy. As human beings, this is the way we are. We can't sustain the form, the ideal form, because we are not ideal. We are people. That doesn't mean that the ideal is not useful. It just means that we don't relate to it in a skillful way. We can develop a negative perception, a brand of self-view based on negativity. If we believe that the ideal is how we really should be and we don't meet that ideal, we may think that we are somehow bad or stupid or weak or hopeless. We mishandle the ideal. In a shrine room, we have the Buddha image as an ideal to guide our practice, but we recognize that sometimes we need to change our posture. We need to come and go. That is not a weakness or something wrong. It is the human condition. It is a common sense. In fact, if somebody sat in the shrine room for a week as still as a Buddha, I think most of us would be a bit concerned. She hasn't breathed since August. <laughs> I think there's something wrong here. Is there a doctor in the house? He goes on, the art of failure. Thus, it is important that we learn how to fail well, learn how to fail in a good way, to handle our tendency to get lost, to get caught up, to miss the point. It's important to learn how to work with that in a skill, skillful way. We need to learn how to fail perfectly or to know how to be perfect failures. And to continue to persevere rather than throw in the towel when there's a relapse or we break a precept or we don't meditate today or this week or whatever to get back on, to keep coming back, to keep, to start over to continue. The sixth factor of the Eightfold Path is the factor of effort. And it's one of the factors, if, you, if we think about the Eightfold Path, it's eight spokes. And um, each spoke stands alone, but each spoke supports each other. If you remove one, the whole wheel falls apart. Um, all of this path takes effort. 
It takes effort to practice renunciation. It takes effort to practice meditation, to study, to show up in Sangha, to tolerate each other, it takes effort to forgive each other, it takes effort to learn to love and be generous, the, the effort of giving of our time, of our energy, of our resources. When we stop putting in the effort, we stop making the pro progress. And this stream that we're going against, you know, if you're kind of out there paddling, you're making some progress, and you're like, oh, cool, I made some progress. I think I'll stop. The current takes us back downstream. We don't get to, uh, you know, rest on the meditation we did last year. We got to keep doing our meditation this year. And there are some changes and there are some teachings from the Buddha where he says, you know, when you've come to a certain point, you know, stream entry is inevitable and, you know, the Dharma will continue to unfold from within you. But perseverance and, and, and just, I really want to encourage everyone to know, and I love that, that my teacher is talking about the skill of failure. And you just know like we're gonna fail. We're gonna fuck it up, <laughs> you know? And if you're a perfect Buddhist, you're probably pretty uptight. <laughs> and just relax a notch. Some of my thoughts about um, the importance of perseverance and, and um, effort and another place in the teachings that comes to mind is um, when the, after the Buddha came to his awakening and I uh, was trying to formulate, how did I get here? I mean, how am I going to uh, teach this to others? Should I teach this to others? How can I formulate uh, what I've experienced? He spent seven years and he said, I went all these down, went down this dead end of, you know, seeking it from gurus and religion. And, you know, I didn't find it over there. And, I uh, went down this dead end of, um, you know, first half of his life in the castles and the materialism. He's like, there's no freedom over there. And then as he came to it, as he discovered mindfulness and battled with his own mind, Mara, he came to the awakening, learned to meet pain with compassion, learned to meet pleasure with non-attachment, learned to no longer take the mind so personally as self, but having a relationship to the thoughts and emotions rather than letting them control him, us. And he reflected back post-awakening and he said, okay, five things. He said, first, I had confidence that it was possible. Sometimes referred to as faith. I believed that it was possible to be happy, to be free, to be awake, to recover, to whatever is motivating, whatever suffering is motivating your practice. <laughs> I believe, you know, is having some confidence. It's, you know, not totally and completely hopeless. And, and you know, one of the encouragements is when we're feeling hopeless, which I feel like is 
uh, pretty normal for people at times uh, to remember uh, when we used to have faith. I've been there before where I, my mind is just like, does this shit even work? Look at how, <laughs> look at how people behave. Look at how, you know, my mind continues to, and you kind of start get disillusioned and hopeless. And then remember, like, I used to have so much confidence and, and then start reflecting on, oh, I have made progress. This shit is working. So he said, first there's that, you know, you have to have some confidence, then effort. And like number two, you gotta do the work. You gotta persevere. You gotta get on a path and persevere and um, think of it as about for the rest of our lives. That's how I think about it. Just for the rest of my life, I'm going to meditate and I'm gonna live by these precepts and I'm going to do the retreats and sometimes I'm going to feel like it and sometimes I'm not gonna feel like it and I'm just gonna keep going. I'm just gonna persevere. No matter what happens in the world or in my personal life, my relationships, no matter what happens, I'm gonna keep going. And I hope that you feel that way and I encourage you to make that kind of commitment. And sure, one day at a time, all of that blah, 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 for the rest of your life. <laughs> That's how this path works. That's how it really gradually, the wisdom replaces the ignorance. The confidence replaces the doubt. The compassion replaces the aversion. The non-attachment becomes more and more uh, easy over the years and decades of our incarna incarnation. So I'll leave it there and uh, open to questions, comments, clarifications. What are your thoughts? Um, Rick, please go ahead. Is there, do you know what measuring stick Tipo used to decide he had arrived if he was awakened? And how did he know the difference between Tuesday and Wednesday? Um, the question, I don't know if everybody could hear uh, Rick, is that um, what was the measuring stick or how did the Buddha know that he had arrived? What was the, um, you know, had he arrived at awakening? And uh, kind of, I, I wasn't awake on Tuesday, but uh, today I am. Um, the measuring stick of the Buddha and Buddhism is, uh, is there any suffering? Yesterday I was suffering. Even the subtlest form of suffering, the subtle, you know, the most, yeah, you know, subtlest clinging or aversion or uh, self-centeredness, you know, that kind of becoming I, me, mine, taking it personal. Yesterday, 
I was really feeling some aversion and some clinging and some self-centeredness. And today it's gone. And let's see if it lasts, right? Kind of, because uh, we all have, hopefully we all have moments where like, oh, wow, there's no suffering in this moment. But have you ever had a whole day with no suffering? Really? Have you really, and being mindful, not like, yeah, I was like on ecstasy all day and there was no suffering, <laughs> but being mindful, being present, being you know, awake to where your mind didn't, you didn't take any of it personal. You didn't cling to anything. You didn't have any aversion or judgments or and so that's, you know, that's the, the Dharma, right? That's the measuring stick. And he said, and now I'm free. Now you've heard me lots of times say, part of that was that eve of, you know, uh, enlightenment, he's under the Bodhi tree and he's, you know, and he says, I'm being attacked by craving and aversion and doubt and Mara's attacking. Um, and it feels like, and then he's like, I've seen through you. And he replies to Mara, that aspect of her, he calls it the house builder, that part of the mind that builds this structure of self and suffering. So I've seen through you and I've shattered your ridge pole, that which has been propping up the tent of self and suffering. And he, my feeling is he thought, I've won victory over this. I've seen through the ego's tricks and I'm never going to fall for it again. And it's just going to go away. Like I've, you know, I've shattered the ridge pole. This shit's over. And as it turns out, although he's able to live the whole rest of his incarnation as an awakened being that experiences zero suffering, zero suffering, this is the goal. <laughs> He says, I still experience pain. I still have emotions. I still have sensations. As Amara was saying in that book, I still have to eat and walk my body. You know, I still have aches and he's getting older and he's, you know, experiencing the uh, unpleasantness of, of aging and decay. And, you know, he's got injuries and he, the Buddha had chronic pain, but he didn't have any aversion to the chronic pain to the injuries. So he didn't suffer about it. He had compassion for not only his own mortal coil body, but also for all of the pain in the world. So I used to not only suffer about my own experience, I used to suffer so much about what other people were experiencing. And now just compassion and compassion. There's no suffering and compassion. There's just care. There's just love and love that accepts pain is unavoidable, is inevitable. Um, but my, oh, what I was saying is my feeling is he was a bit surprised that that aspect of mind kept coming back. Mara kept coming back. He said, I'm, I'm not taking the bait, but my mind keeps encouraging me to suffer. Even though I've seen through it, Mara keeps, entering the picture and uh, saying, you know what, this is worth suffering about. <laughs> you should be mad about this. You should, you know, you should be lustful about that. 
but mindfulness was established so well and the awakening so complete that he would just say, I see that thought as leading to suffering. So I'm not going to indulge in it. I'm not going to take the bait because I'm sober, I'm practicing renunciation, I'm mindful, and I'm not going to, I'm no longer addicted to obeying my mind. And so I can have that discernment, and now there's no suffering. This is the goal. I want that. Don't you want that? I want that. So I'm going to keep going towards that. So where this path leads. Couple questions online. From Ryan, it says, my understanding is that while meditating, we are supposed to let our thoughts dissolve and be a passive observer of our thoughts. If that's true, when do we confront our sorrows and grief while meditating? So a little tricky for me to answer um, the way that it's framed, Ryan, about that we're supposed to let our thoughts dissolve and be a passive observer. Uh, in my instructions tonight, uh, what I was encouraging was not a complete passive observation, but an engagement with the mind. Uh, I, I was in, in the instructions, I was encouraging investigation, uh, identifying what's happening and um, responding to it. And so, uh, and this is mindfulness of how I understand mindfulness, not a detached observation, but um, an engaged responding to what's happening. Uh, Ajahn Amaro calls it a um, uh, non-entangled participation with the mind, with your experience. And so if you're practicing meditation, not as a passive observer, but as a uh, unentangled uh, participant, when grief arises, then you turn towards it and you feel it and you don't just kind of watch it from a distance, but you embody grief and you let the tears come and you let the heart ache and you breathe with it and you soften to it and you uh, fully embody the emotion, whether it's a grief or uh, sorrow or it's joy and uh, something more pleasant, <laughs> love, kindness, compassion. Uh, generosity, uh, exuberance. Our job is to embody what's happening with a non-entanglement. To know this is arising and passing through this heart-mind process without clinging to it as who we are. A relationship to the emotions, to the thoughts, to the experience, to the world internal and external without taking it all so personal. It's just sorrow. It's unpleasant. Sometimes life is unpleasant. It's unavoidable. It's not the enemy. Thank you, I'm glad that was helpful. Any other thoughts, questions, comments from anybody? at home, if you'd like to 
verbally ask a question, you can raise your hand and I can identify you by the little blue hand that's under the participants tab down at the bottom. It says raise hand. The, or I think also on your, on your Hollywood Square. Last chance. All right, we'll leave it there for tonight. I love you, keep going, learn how to fail with uh, some style and finesse and, um, and keep coming back to your cushion, your sangha, your, uh, your meetings, your precepts, your path, keep going. And I'll see you next week. Um, this class is done by donation. So please um, make a donation. <laughs> if you're at home, there's somebody has, um, I believe Rachel has posted the againstthestream.com backslash donations. Um, you can make a donation there. You can go to the Against the Stream Meditation Center on Venmo or on um, PayPal. Please help support the center. Uh, we, you know, even though uh, we're not meeting much in person, although there is um, seven or eight people in the room tonight, um, we still need to pay the rent on our meditation center. So uh, as home participants, please help us do that by making donations when you come to class and, and or becoming a monthly supporter. Um, of go to the website, click the monthly supporter. You can give $25, $50, $100 a month, and that helps us um, make sure that we pay the rent so that our meditation can, center can still be here when uh, the pandemic ends. Do pandemics end or are they just. Uh, <laughs> I guess the flu never went away, so it'll just you know, we'll get a, we'll get there where we can safely meditate in large groups at some point again. I guess we'll all get the vaccine or whatever, who knows. Um, I don't think I have any announcements. Many goodness that comes from our practice be shared with everyone everywhere. Together may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.